Welcome to Cooking Books with me, Julie Smith. And this week I'm with William Sitwell, restaurant critic at The Telegraph, host of the podcast Biting Talk and author of The Restaurant, the history not just of eating out, but a story of human life through the prism of how we've learned to eat. You look around the world now in normal times and you realise actually that there are lots of restaurants catering for people not to sate their hunger, but to sate their instincts for fashion, to sate their desire to be seen in a particular place, um, to sate people's desire to have this sort of touristic, gastronomic journey of the mind. As we tour the world through time and space from the Ottoman Empire to Marco Pierre White's London, I asked William as our guide to choose just four food moments from the book. He began at the beginning, well, almost, when people were drinking to be merry rather than as a show of conspicuous consumption. Welcome to Pompeii in August AD 79, the day before Vesuvius would forever set its love of eating and drinking in stone. Well, I started Pompeii because uh, that was where I could genuinely find uh, evidence because I don't want just to sort of, you know, as a as a writer of history, just purely participate in conjecture. And the extraordinary thing about Pompeii is that, of course, this devastating um, eruption in AD 79 meant that that city, which was a very vibrant, fashionable town, um, uh, it was a seaport, it was a place where people went on holidays, uh, it was a cool place to be, um, it was on the slopes of Vesuvius. It was in Campania, which had very um, verdant and um, you know, great soil, wonderful wine. And that city that has been captured in time um, had a very, very bustling hospitality s- sector. Um, hospitality was a very key notion in the Roman Empire. It was almost uh, enshrined in law you were expected to give and receive it at the most furthest extremities of of the borders of the Roman Empire. And Pompeii was a great example of that. And there are brilliant and vivid examples there of brothels and inns and taverns and hotels and, you know, taverns with rooms. It was pretty busy and people rub shoulder to shoulder, uh, rich and poor, okay, not slaves, but... The, the sort of more prosperous middle classes in Pompeii. And we can tell that they live side by side because we know the names of the people who lived in the villas and lived in the slightly more humble abodes on the same streets. And um, we can find the menus for these places. We can tell what they were selling, how much they were selling wine for. We can tell the complaints of the customers because they graffitied them on the walls. So... The amazing thing is you go back that far and you see actually that hospitality was a, was pretty well developed. And the extraordinary thing is it takes ages for hospitality to then get to that stage of development in Europe. And what's really interesting from the evidence that that is available to all of us is that things haven't really changed in Italian cuisine. I mean, you find evidence of pizzas. I do, absolutely. <laughs> and I think that if you are used to um, the kind of a classic kind of Italian trattoria. I think that you would, if you walked into an inn or a tavern in Pompeii, you'd f- you wouldn't feel that it w- this wasn't completely unfamiliar. I mean, I was quite surprised actually that there were tourists coming, um, and you know that it was such a vibrant party town. Perhaps you'd take us to page thirteen for your first food moment and and read us a little bit of it. 
It was to Pompeii that Romans came for partying, to gamble, to find girls, to eat and to drink. And both visitors and residents were well catered for. Hospitality was a cornerstone of the town, if not the wider empire. The term originates from the word hospes, which describes a Roman who is connected to a fellow Roman by ties of hospitality. The word was both legal and sacred. It was stronger than blood. They even had a god who oversaw it. So you can see they took it pretty seriously. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And that's what I find so interesting about this book. You know, the thread leads right up to the conspicuous consumption of now, where we, in many ways, we've completely lost the plot. But actually, there's a really interesting um, argument to say that the age of decadence precipitates the end of an era. And it was not long after that, that the fall of the Roman Empire happened. And I wonder how you feel about this kind of idea that we lose our sense of why we eat. Uh, we we fetishise food. It wasn't happening at that time in Pompeii, but it, it did happen in the Roman Empire. Well, the extraordinary thing about, you know, consumption and food, all these things are sort of cyclical. So things do tend to get out of control. And then for some reason, um, because of war or some act of nature, everything seems to be sort of struck back down to the ground. And maybe that's what we're we're experiencing now. I mean, when you think about the fact that, you you know, your, your instinct would be that hospitality exists to feed people because people are hungry. Restaurants are there to serve people because they need to eat. Um, you look at a look around the world now or in normal times and you realise actually that there are lots of restaurants catering for people not to sate their hunger, but to sate their instincts for fashion, to sate their desire to be seen in a particular place, um, to sate people's desire to have this sort of touristic, gastronomic journey of the mind where we we are, it's about texture and experience and drama and theatre. And when you get to that point, you have to think, well, what's happening? What's happened to the, the fundamentals of, of dining out, of eating out? And if we're not eating out because we're not hungry, has has have things gone over the top? Is it time for a natural correction? But then why shouldn't it be? You know, if people can be entertained like that in the same way that they can be entertained in a theatre and if you can if you can bring theatre to the dining experience and people can make money out of it and people are prepared to spend money on it you know who are we to to say that you shouldn't be able to do that well exactly and and you do tell the story of how we get to that and how you go through the ottoman empire you go through medieval europe and your next food moment we land in the french revolution where uh, food is about something other than uh, sustenance. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. There's, there's, there's a lot of debate about this idea of the French Revolution being the cause of fine dining in Paris and some great scholars, particularly in the United States, slam it and say it's complete nonsense. But I, I do believe that it is part of the story. It is not the only reason, but it is a reason. And the idea is that aristocrats were having their heads chopped off by Robespierre and his cronies and that meant that um, the staff of the Grand Chateau found themselves out of work they needed jobs some went into exile along with their employers others did what they could do which was um, go into service but on the public stage and there are examples of chefs and their staff opening restaurants in Paris 
And if you look at the number of restaurants before the French Revolution and the number after, there are some 500 more. So something was going on. Now, the French Revolution wasn't the only reason, but it was a reason, but it wasn't the reason. Um, and, the you know, you have the irony of Robespierre himself, the great lover of Madame la Guillotine, who finally was put on his own, his favourite machine with his face upwards as the blade was hurtling towards his throat. He must have wondered what on earth he'd unleashed with the idea that his fellow... Um, Jacobites were dining in nice provincial restaurants in the city. But of course, you know, Robespierre was responsible for people languishing in prisons and thinking and dreaming about the food that they'd left behind. And where there's a will, there's a way. Uh, Perhaps you'd like to read what's happening in those prisons. As well as the revolutionaries, those restaurants had another type of customer, individuals they were well used to, whom they had once served in great luxury, At the height of the terror, there was only so much the guillotine could do each day. So, lingering in the city's jails, very well aware of their impending fate, were hundreds of dispossessed aristocrats, their clothes, silk waistcoats and long white shirts, fraying and filthy. They needed feeding, so they ordered takeouts. According to contemporary French dramatist Louis-Sébastien Mercier, The victims in the prisons worshipped their stomachs and the most exquisite victuals were seen passing through the narrow wicket gate destined for men who were about to eat their last meal on earth. Um, But France also is important because it's, particularly with people like Antoine Carême, who come along a little bit later, really categorise and formalise the idea of the professional kitchen separating the professional kitchen from the home kitchen. Um, And, of course, the French have always and still do take their gastronomy very seriously. There is a lovely argument, of course, that, and I write about, read about this in a previous book, that actually it was the Italians who were responsible for French gastronomy. Because when Catherine de Medici came over, married by the Pope, her uncle, to King Henry of France, she, of course, brings with her, her her Italian entourage. And then she influences... French fashions and, of course, French food. So I love the idea that actually French gastronomy has to tip its head to the Italians because they they started it. But let's not get... That's another whole argument. <laughs> and that... I mean, you, t- you tell lots of stories about what happens all over the world, but then that French story is brought to Britain in a fabulous chapter about the... the, the really sort of the, sort of the beginnings of modern British oh, food... Yes by a couple of French brothers, the Rue brothers. Yes, and of course, this is the, one of the great moments in, in the story of food after Britain languished in the sort of beige, foodie landscape, uh, what well, certainly wasn't foodie, of the Second World War. And w- what is wonderful is that, you know, restaurants don't exist in a vacuum. The food world doesn't exist in, to, in a vacuum. And, you know, people create restaurants because of the circumstances in which they find themselves, and also in spite of, as part of the counterculture. And the Rue brothers saw in London an opportunity. And Albert was already working for the Caslet family as a private chef. And Michel was working for the Rothschild family as a private chef in Paris. And But the two of them, with their young wives, would meet every summer down in Albert's house in Kent. And during the week and in the evenings when they had time off, they would go and dine in London 
And their wives were rather curious because every time they came back from yet another dismal evening, the two brothers seemed very excited about this. And they couldn't really understand this. I mean, why would they be excited about having yet another dismal, terrible meal? But of course, Albert and Michelle were commercial people. They had, they had entrepreneurial instincts and they saw a gap in the market that others had not seen. Partly because it was, you know, the British people weren't demanding better food and so they then didn't get it. And there are two sort of main key influences of, of the Rue brothers. One is that they made fine dining fashionable with Gavroche. But the second, of course, is because of the people who passed through those kitchens. And some of the most famous chefs of the subsequent generation of, of restaurants, of restaurateurs in the 80s and 90s, people like Marco Pierre White and Rayleigh Lee, they trained in the, in the kitchens of Gavroche. Um, and so, and they in turn inspired another generation of often young British cooks. So, um, it, it was it was a wonderful thing that the Rue brothers did, and it's very sad that Michel died, you know, so recently. He was a, he was an incredible man, and of course, having exploited the bleak landscape of London, they then thought, well, hang on a second, where's where there where is there another opportunity? And of course, there on the banks of the Thames. There were lots of posh houses and smart cars. And they found this dingy pub called the Waterside Inn, where literally you had to sort of scrape the mud off the wind, off the windows to see out and see the river. And it looked terrible, but um, when Michel first saw it, he rang his brother and said, I've found just the place. The estate agent had assumed that he was conducting yet another failed viewing. But no, Michel was overjoyed and they opened the uh, Waterside Inn and... Yeah, the rest is history, as they say. Absolutely, and 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 brought Pierre Kaufman with them, who then trained up Marco Pierre White, and and yeah, and lots and lots of chefs came out of those various kitchens. What's your take? I mean, you do tell the story of how Britain lost its sense of taste, but it didn't happen in the same way. The Industrial Revolution happened all over the world, but it people didn't lose their sense of taste in the way that the Brits did. I think it's partly because. I think there's a sort of British instinct for resilience. And if you can cope with something and cope without something, then mentally, I think you cope better. So if you think about life in the Second World War, where rationing so reduced the, the, the food offering that we had, rather than constantly grumble about it, the British people accepted it, respected it. Rationing went on for seven years beyond the Second World War. And so that sort of feeling of making do and putting up with what is what we would now see as an extraordinary narrow um, number of ingredients and food. I mean, just, just have no comparison today you know, with what we're offered. But they put up with it and actually almost relished it and relished the economy of it. Um, I think that uniquely, really, I think the British also, and you see this in the Industrial Revolution, we kind of abandoned our agrarian society those roots much quicker than they did in the rest of europe and so you know with a, a love of new technology and modernism people rushed to the cities now of course they ended up living in slums a lot of the workers but it did mean that britain lost touch with um you know it's the, the peasant culture diminished and and in that as the agrarian society diminished, where people would live and work in the same village and wouldn't travel, so they would literally live off the land, 
that dissipated and 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 with it we lost our sense of seasonal eating which is still very much an instinct in the rest of europe but i think now it's more a sort of badge of middle class foodies as luxury i you know although i have to say the the current crisis i think has has actually brought people to their senses and more people are using farmers shops and food boxes which they've done by dint of convenience but then they realize actually this is a much much more natural and wonderful way of cooking and, and eating yeah, or something to post on Instagram. I'm just wondering whether we could actually blame Henry VIII. I mean, I think you do. And uh, at that moment, he fell in love with Anne Boleyn. I, I wonder if, you know, it all went to pot. Whether if we say if we'd stayed as a nation of Catholics like the French, the Italians, the Spanish, it would all have been a very different story because of the feasts. Well, also, you know, let's think of the dissolution of the monasteries. Um, there you had a key provider of hospitality. Yeah. Suddenly, for the travellers. For the travellers bringing their ideas from different countries. Yeah, suddenly removed. It was a, a sort of unintended consequence of that. Um, and that must have left so many people bereft of the ability to be able to to eat. But then you might say, well, in its place, taverns could therefore grow. So uh, I wouldn't blame Henry VIII entirely for it. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go to your fourth food moment in a discussion of the role of critics, so you go to, well, let's use the story that you tell about Bernard Loiseau, um, a fabulous chef who feared that he might he was going to lose his third Michelin star and committed suicide. Do you want to tell what you think about critics within the context of that story? Have we lost the plot with the with the Michelin Guide, with the stars, with everyone chasing their tail to to be the best, to get away from that early idea of hospitality that we talked about at the beginning to this this very conspicuous, this very showy form of eating? Well, the first thing I'd say is that the death of Bernard, Bernard Loiseau was a was a it was a peculiarly French thing. And when the British press reported on it, I think they reported on it with far more sort of breathless astonishment than the French press did. Because, you know, in the early 2000s, I don't think still that we took the guide so seriously and that we wouldn't have recognised that, that the threat of losing a star might mean that someone would want to take their own life. Now... Uh, it's not the only reason Loiseau took his own life. The, the story of people who don't know about him, this is one of the greatest um, holders of Michelin stars in France, with a fantastic hotel restaurant in Burgundy. Um, he, there were rumours that his sources weren't quite up to it. There was a guide called the Gourmilleux that was threatening. It was said to reduce him by one point. And anyway, to cut a long story short, he shot himself with a hunting rifle that his his beloved wife had, had given him. And I've met her and I've been to the restaurant. She's she's Dominique Loiseau, is the most extraordinary woman who has kept up kept on the restaurant without her husband. She almost sort of gave her whole life to her husband, and then he checked out. But she's still she's still going strong. Um, but it talks, I suppose, that story about the power of the guides and the influence that they had. And there were certainly contemporary chefs of Loiseau, um, such as Paul Bocuse, another three Michelin-starred chef, who uh, blamed the critics and blamed the Gourmilleux for, for his death. Um, 
So it, it's a story that does really bring to mind the power of the critics. And of course, critics have been very powerful. I think New York, for example, the critic of the New York Times, um, has always, well, traditionally, historically towered over the, the New York dining scene um, in a way that really the critics in this country haven't. But I still think that the, the restaurant critics of, of the United Kingdom, and I'm one of them, do have a certain influence. People have, all, have, have said that that influence has diminished with blogging and Instagram and so on. But I think also that there is so much information out there that it's not a bad thing occasionally to rely on the traditional critics if you're trying to look for a view, because if you poke about on TripAdvisor, if you poke around on Instagram, you know, it's quite hard to tell where people are actually talking the truth about their dining experiences or trying to show off um, about their skills or their would-be skills as a, as a restaurant critic. So I still think, I think the, the clutch of critics for the national newspapers still have a part to play and you know and there we are we're all on instagram now as well trying to fight for attention um but i think that yeah i think that loiseau was a was a peculiarly specifically french story but i mean i've i've spoke to marco pierre white about this and i said you know what do you think about the power of michelin and we must distinguish the guides from you know from the guides and the critics, they're totally different uh, in, industries, institutions. Michelin is there partly to sell tyres. Critics are there to sell their columns and their newspapers. But if you ask Marco Pierre-White, as I did, you know, about the pressure that the guides put on chefs, he says chefs put pressure on themselves. They do it to themselves. It's, they don't blame the guides, and you don't have to worry about the guides. And if you're like him, you can shut them out if you can spot these people with their... Uh, samsonite suitcases and cheap suits and a, an expression which tells you that they wouldn't know how to have a good time if they hit them in the face um you know so you can't necessarily blame that chefs chefs love the excitement and the pressure of the kitchen it's one of the reasons why they're suffering so much now because they they haven't got that daily uh, addictive adrenaline fix yeah and i i've talked to Marco many a time and he said almost exactly word for word what he says to you um <laughs> but he you could also put that at his door that he fetishized food back at Harvey's by making it something so much more than an eating experience he made it he was one of the first proponents of conspicuous consumption if you were seen to be eating in Harvey's you'd made it um but also when you were having that experience you couldn't ask for any extra salt or you know it was the ketchup that threw somebody out on the street, I seem to remember. He's a man obsessed with taste and texture. Um, but he happened to be have the skill of an artist on the plate. It was a sort of instinctive thing. I mean, he was, he would, you could say, was cooking food as good as, or if not better, than, than some classic French restaurants in France without, having a, without ever having even crossed the channel. Um, but he always said, you know, you eat with your eyes first, but then the flavour... You know, the, the food on the plate has to, has to then deliver. There's no use serving food that looks pretty but doesn't taste great. It was all about exquisite gastronomy. It looked beautiful. It was beautiful. It had every single element of it that was, you know, absolutely worked. But my point, I think, is that it was the shtick of Marco that inspired a whole load of young chefs to come up. I mean, Jamie Oliver says that he was inspired by 
the 16-year-old lads who were working in his dad's pub because they wanted to be like Marco. The amount of chefs, and, and I'm sure you do too, who, who I talk to, who wanted to be Marco Pierre White or in some way were inspired by him, mm. not because of that extraordinary food that he was creating, but because of how he looked and what he represented. Yes, and it was a brutal place to work in his kitchen. But if you speak to any chefs who work there, whether they're Phil Howard... Uh, who now has um, his restaurant in Chelsea, or you speak to Tim Hughes, who runs the Caprice Holdings dining rooms, they don't regret a day there. They love the sort of ferocious atmosphere. You know, Marco's classic way of if a chef complained he was too hot, he would, you know, literally scissor off his apron from the, the, the boy's back. And so they, you know, he had a, he had a particular way of, of cooking and you can see some of these videos on youtube it's quite fun actually you can see a young gordon ramsay scuttling around as marco sort of does his countdown as he's trying to bring it together so there yeah there was a there was a drama and excitement to it and uh, it was like a kind of you know the word brigade those army connotations were completely completely apt um, and I think he fired up young chefs to, uh, to go into this profession because it was exciting. But then you speak to people like Raymond Blanc, who totally condemn the the kitchens that then were that, that were then spawned by Gordon Ramsay, who trained under Marco and then sort of took effing and blinding to a whole new level. Um, and you know, uh, Raymond's always argued that you know the kitchen needs to be a place of of calm, and otherwise you have huge mental health problems and you have this huge spike in drug addiction that you do get. So there are there are chefs like Roly Lee, for example, who see cooking as therapy, as as a more gentle sort of art. Um, mm. Who nevertheless, are, you know, who I think is one of the great chefs of of this country so yeah there are a lot of there are contrasting people who come out of that but i think you're certainly right that marco uh certainly cr created an atmosphere and a spirit that hadn't existed that certainly excited and ignited an entire generation of, of young budding chefs but it didn't affect the diner on the other side of the of the kitchen door you know well, I wonder, I wonder. And, I, and that's kind of leads me to my last question. You know, we've had this sort of pause button pressed on the restaurant industry. A lot of restaurants are suffering badly, but they will come back. But in what form, what role do you think the restaurant will take if we have to be socially distanced for some time? If it's not about, uh, I don't know, um, going with a bunch of friends to just have a really lovely time, what will the role of the restaurant be after lockdown? Well, I think that people... My instinct is that people will break the rules. And I think that uh, people will... I mean, you know, hospitality, that word, the word, the idea of a pub, small restaurants, bustling places, the atmosphere, that's what makes a restaurant. It's not just about the food. If you only go for the food, you know, you're going for the wrong reasons. I'm sort of misquoting uh, Adrian Gill. Um, I think that... There's a lot of argument, there's a lot of conjecture out at the moment about, you know, restaurants that are operating at 40% of capacity will not exist in the same way that airlines can't operate either. So you've got campaigns such as those run by Soho Estates to pedestrianise Soho to put, to enable small restaurants to spill out onto the street, not not for the pleasure that it gives the diner, although it is fun, but also to give them some chance of actually being able to exist. But who wants to be served by someone wearing a, a plastic visor 
and a, and a you know and a, and a face mask even if it's got their face printed on it it just is not compatible with the spirit of hospitality so i think either it'll take a long time long, i think two things it'll take a long time to get back on its feet and, or until there's a vaccine and people will break the lockdown codes and places will return you're not going to stop young people going to clubs you're not going to you know the, it is not possible to police restaurants cafes pubs um across the across the the country it's, we you know we don't have a police force that's geared up to do it um how do you stop a person going to a bar and and standing slightly too close to someone else because he's trying to catch the the bartender's attention as he waves his fiver or his tenor so um i think that there's a there's a huge amount of worry Fortunately, the hospitality industry is one of the most creative industries there are. It's nice, you know, I have a little uh, food and drink show, Biting Talk on Instagram every, you know, twice a week. And we, we discuss this constantly with people. And there's going to be a lot of places opening in July. And some of those places, places will operate and start and try and operate the social distancing. But is it a metre, a metre and a half, two metres? The rules will relax. People will relax. And as long as there's not a second spike in the virus, I think that the hospitality industry will sort of get back to normal because it has to, because it's just, it's not about a new normal. It's just about the realities of humans who need to congregate. So I think a combination of, yeah, some guys doing well, other people just breaking the rules, just getting on with it and... Um, yeah, congregating and enjoying eating and being merry just as as we ever did brilliant thank you very much william it's a wonderful book thank you so much thank you very much for your interest i really appreciate it julie lovely to chat to you thanks for listening do subscribe rate and review the podcast and i'll see you next week in gil meller's allotment as we dig into his new book root stem leaf flower to find out just how beautiful plant-based food can be